0: Hello, hello. Welcome to another podcast in this one. I'm going to talk about some of the things that I previously got wrong. I've been making a series of Instagram posts where I basically tell you the stuff that I got wrong or misinterpreted or changed my mind on. And it's been pretty popular. I think people like seeing that process. And so I thought I might make a bit of a podcast and explain some of these things a bit more. So in this one, I'm gonna talk about three things specifically that I previously got wrong that I changed my mind on. The first one is that I used to think that juices are just sugary water with very little micronutrition. The second one is that I used to think you needed a lot of carbs to grow the most muscle possible. And the last one is that I used to think you needed to match a push exercise with a pull exercise to make sure that your posture posture and shoulders stay healthy. And actually, I'll do a fourth one as well. I used to think that a good coach uses lots of cues, lots of small tweaks, and plenty of micromanagement to get the best results for their client. So those are the four things we'll look at today, and I'll go into a bit more detail. The first one is that I used to think juices are just sugary water with very little micronutrition. And now I think that juices aren't quite as nutrient-rich as whole fruits and vegetables, but I still think they're a good way to get vitamins and antioxidants. And I changed my mind on this because I created a little, well, I did some research and this was to create some content for my courses and for my clients on food processing. And some of the aspects of food processing I looked at were the cooking method and how that affects your nutrition in the food. The second thing I looked at was fresh versus frozen and how food storage might impact nutrient loss. And the third thing I looked at was juicing. So the research on juicing kind of got me to change my mind. So with juicing, certainly one of the big issues is that it removes most of the solid material in fruits and vegetables. And so, of course, you then lose out on some fiber, and you lose out on a lot of the satiety properties there, for sure, because the the volume is now lower, and you've removed a lot of the sort of solid material. But, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean that the micronutrients are gone. So a study by Kiefer et al. in 2004 found that supplementing with mixed fruit and vegetable juice over 14 weeks improved their study participants' nutrient levels, specifically with beta-carotene, vitamin C, vitamin E, selenium, and folate. So that's super good, right? A 2011 review of 22 studies also found that drinking juice made from fresh fruits and vegetables or with a blended powder concentrate, so you'll often find these, you know, concentrated powders sold as like greens, supplements or something like that. Uh, Drinking juice or fresh fruit and vegetables or using this blended powder concentrate actually improved folate and antioxidant levels, including beta carotene, vitamin C and vitamin E. So definitely if there weren't any micronutrients left in juices, we wouldn't see these improvements. And remember this previous study I mentioned was a review of 22 different studies. There's a couple of other studies as well A couple looking at apple juice specifically and pomegranate juice. So apple and pomegranate juice have both been linked to reduced blood pressure and reduced cholesterol levels. Those were studies by Stowe uh, in 2011 and Heysen et al. in 2000. Of course, the big downside, like I mentioned before, is that almost all the fiber is lost in juicing. And one of the issues with that is not just the fiber content itself, but the fact that many antioxidants are bound to the fiber. And some scientists suggest that the full benefits of antioxidants are actually dependent on the fiber content of the whole fruits and vegetables. So the idea is essentially that when we have a whole fruit or vegetable or just a whole food in general, there's an overall nutrient matrix that exists. And if you get rid of some of the components of that or if you just supplement with a vitamin or just with a mineral... Without all of the other components, then you end up not having the synergistic effect that it might normally have as part of a whole food matrix. And the suggestion here is that since many of these antioxidants are bound to fiber, they might actually even depend on the fiber being there to be able to exert their full effects. There may be some elements of the skin of a fruit or vegetable, for example, that contains various compounds that maybe we don't know too much about that could contribute to some sort of synergistic effect of all the nutrients in there. So certainly I do think that you know I would prefer to eat a whole fruit or eat a whole vegetable but having juice in there can be a really good option to you know get in a few more vitamins and minerals and there are some cases where this can be especially useful. I mean obviously with People who just aren't very good at eating their fruits and vegetables, it's a tastier way of getting in some of that nutrition. And that's then a better alternative to something like a Coke or whatever. And I also think in the case of bulking, it could be a really handy thing because often when we're in a massing phase, we don't have much appetite. And in this case, removing fiber can actually be kind of helpful because then obviously we we need to somehow promote a way of getting in more calories um, and, and without feeling too full. And then also, at least if you're going to get in some calories in the form of like liquid calories, we should at least try and make them nutritious, right? So juices have a pretty good place there, I reckon, because you're removing the fiber that could interfere with you eating enough calories. But the calories you are adding in are not quote unquote empty calories like you might get from drinking like a Gatorade or, or some other fizzy drink or something like that, you're at least getting some nutrition from juice. So I think that there's actually a pretty good argument to be made there. Uh, you know, now just on the, on the fiber thing, in most cases, we are going to want to keep the fiber in there. So higher fiber intakes have been associated with uh, lower risks of heart disease, lower risk of obesity, um, type 2 diabetes, mainly revolving around con- helping to control blood glucose, but also controlling satiety. So satiety is improved when we eat whole foods compared to consuming the equivalent calories in liquid form. And one of the studies that looked at this did quite an interesting little study. They compared drinking apple juice with eating whole apples and looked at the effect on blood lipids. They found that LDL cholesterol levels were actually increased by 6.9% in the juice group compared to the whole apple group, which is not a good thing. So Drinking calories, obviously not the best dietary strategy for those looking to lose or maintain weight, but I do think that juicing has its place. So I certainly changed my mind from thinking that juices are just sugary water with very little micronutrition. And now, as I mentioned, I don't think they're as rich in nutrients as whole fruits and veg, but there's still a good way to get in vitamins and antioxidants. All right, on to the next thing I changed my mind about. I used to think you needed a lot of carbs to grow the most muscle possible. And now I think, well, as long as you have a sufficient amount of carbohydrates, it doesn't really matter as long as you consume enough energy. Now, I did a whole podcast on, you know, how much energy you actually need to grow. So if you're interested in this topic, definitely go back and have a look at that. But essentially what we're looking at here to try and grow muscle is that we, we need to take into account the increased energy costs of building new tissue. So the energy cost of building muscle basically needs to take into account a bunch of different things that you might not think of. The first is that there's energy stored within muscle tissue, um, you know, so we need to provide that energy in the first place through diet. The second is that there's uh, an energy cost of training, of course, plus any elevation in energy expenditure after training. So if we're trying to build muscle, we're probably doing higher training volumes and training quite hard. Of course, we need to fuel that training and we need to fuel any increases in metabolic rate as a result of that training. Then we need to think about the energy cost of actually building the new tissue. It's quite an energy intensive process. And then we need to think about the energy that it takes to maintain that metabolically active tissue. Uh, So there's a bunch of things we need to think about there. Uh, Now, on top of that, when you increase your food intake, you also increase like the thermic effect of food to some extent so that's going to take away from some of the extra calories that you're taking in so you know there's a few things to think about over here and we definitely need to be in some kind of a surplus Uh, i think i recommended in that podcast previously uh, which was based on a paper by slater et al in 2019 a surplus of around like three to four hundred calories being a pretty good place to start and then monitoring your body weight based on that But of course, the main thing that I was talking about with this thing that I changed my mind on was how many carbs and fats you need. So once protein's taken care of, the next thing is like, well, how many of my calories should come from carbs and how many grams of fat should I eat? Now, the research shows that short-term overfeeding studies in non-training populations show no significant difference in body comp, whether the energy surplus comes predominantly from carbs or fat but that's in a non-training sedentary population. So we need to consider how to support hard training when we're trying to grow muscle. Since carbohydrate is the primary substrate that is used during resistance training, it's a very glycolytic activity. It relies on glycogen or glucose. It's logical to explore this idea of adding more carbs to support training better, right? So to that end, uh, Kopman et al. in 2006 found that a 45-minute resistance training session can reduce muscle glycogen stores by about 30-40% to 40% in untrained people. And therefore, the idea is, well, if we have some carbohydrates in the diet that can preserve our muscle glycogen or at least replenish muscle glycogen stores when we're doing higher training volume, then that's probably a good idea. We don't really have enough research though to support going from a moderate carbohydrate intake to a high carbohydrate intake, uh, specifically to improve resistance training performance. So I think that there's not really, there's sort of like a mechanistic rationale for having enough carbs there, 100%. But going from like, you know, if you were already eating 300 grams of carbs and going to 400 grams of carbs, would you see much difference versus just having that extra energy come in as fat? gee i'm not sure we really have enough research to really support that we also need to have a look at some of the data looking at if we went super low carb so like if we went pretty low carb for a medium to long term we have data actually showing that chronic low carb intake impairs muscle gain so vargas et al in 2018 showed that a ketogenic diet was effective for reducing fat mass But to quote the authors, they said it might not be useful to increase muscle mass during positive energy balance in men undergoing resistance training for eight weeks. Similarly, Green et al. in 2018 showed a reduction in lean mass in powerlifting and Olympic weightlifting athletes, so very well trained individuals, um, but they didn't see a reduction in performance over several months on a ketogenic diet. So this is probably showing, you know, reductions in some of the carbohydrate stores in the muscle, so glycogen, that kind of thing in these high level athletes, they didn't see a reduction in performance. So it's unlikely that they lost a lot of muscle, but certainly, it doesn't seem that they were able to gain any muscle, that's for sure. So I think given what the evidence says, we should probably at least include a moderate amount of carbs in our gaining phases. But again, once we've sort of covered a reasonable amount of carbohydrate in the diet, I'm not sure that pushing it super high is going to have that much of an effect. So I think that having somewhere around four grams per kilo of body weight, which is close to around two grams per pound of body weight, is definitely going to be more than enough for most people to build as much muscle as they need to. And then if you need to sort of increase your calories beyond that, you can take it from fat or carb and I think it'll be totally fine. Uh, One of the downsides we have to consider with the maximizing carbohydrate approach is that sometimes it can reduce fat intake to a level that is not great. So to give an example, if we restricted fat too much, like if we went down the path of maximizing every gram of carb we could then you get into this situation where yes someone has a lot of available calories but they don't have very much flexibility in their diet so the the flexibility of what they can eat which is one of the the great pros of being in a calorie surplus of course is not being so restricted and the option for energy dense foods then goes down because one of the easiest way to get in extra calories without getting too full is to use things like oils and nuts and other energy dense things that have a lot of fat in them So if we would go down this path of just trying to maximize carbohydrates at all costs, you end up just having to eat a shitload of like rice and potatoes and stuff like that, which can be pretty boring. And it really limits your options for getting in some energy dense foods that have a lot of fat in them. So yeah, I guess I used to think as long as you, uh, I used to think you need a lot of carbs to grow the most amount of muscle possible. But now I think that as long as you have at least a moderate amount of carbs, it probably doesn't matter that much uh, as long as you're consuming enough energy to be in a surplus for muscle growth. All right, the third thing I changed my mind about is that you need to match a push exercise with a pull exercise to make sure your posture and shoulders stay healthy. And this one's an easy enough thing to address. Essentially, there's, there's no such thing as a perfect ratio between pushing and pulling exercises, we should just focus on promoting the joint function, rather than giving the same number of push and pull exercises, which is a bit arbitrary, especially around something you know, that's a mobile joint like the shoulder joint, there's a lot of different motions that it's capable of. And if you look at what the scapulae can do, it's a lot more than retraction and protraction or elevation and depression. There's a lot of stuff that can happen. And so I just think that including a variety of exercises throughout your training program is a good thing. And whether that ends up being the same number of pushing and pulling is completely arbitrary. Uh, You can certainly have the same number of push and pull exercises in a program and still have really shitty shoulder mechanics because you don't get enough variety in those pushing and pulling movements. So to give an example of that, you know, you may do barbell bench press, dumbbell bench press, incline dumbbell press, and then you do the same number of sets of seated rows, retracting your scaps really hard, dumbbell one-arm rows, like these exercises are all fundamentally the same movement pattern that you're emphasizing and you're never going into elevation or depression with them. You're never really looking at upward rotation, for example. And so it comes down to a lot more than simply matching pulling and pushing exercises. It's going through different ranges of motion. So that's a fairly simple one to to have changed my mind on and to explain. All right, finally, I used to think a good coach uses lots of tweaks. Uh, lots of small tweaks, lots of cues, and plenty of micromanagement to get the best results. Uh, I think you see this quite a lot. and It's probably a mistake that a lot of people make. I guess they're trying to, you know, as as a trainer, you kind of try and justify why you're there, you justify your existence, you may get the sense that the client believes that you should be doing a lot of micromanagement. And sometimes clients believe that that's what good coaching is as well. But I'd like to tell a little bit of a story because now I think that the best coaches are calculated. They consider all of the details for sure. They are detail-oriented, but they help their clients get progress with minimal obvious intervention. And that's a tough thing because obviously as a client, you might be paying a lot of money to a coach. And if they are simply making what seems to be pretty basic decisions or not doing too much, then it sometimes feels like, well, what am I paying for? But you know, the decision-making process that has to happen is extremely involved on the coach's end if they're a good coach. And I think that if they are communi- communicating every single step of that to you, then that's not good coaching. That is simply confusing the issue. Um, it's one of those things where like, the idea is to get you somewhere and to teach you how to do it and to give you the structure to be able to do that. And by dumping tons of information on you all the time, it doesn't really achieve that as a coach. I can kind of make an analogy, like if you get an electrician over to fix something for you, you kind of want to know what he's doing, but he doesn't need to tell me all of the little details of like, oh, this is the tool I'm using and this is the name of the thing and and like every single step and every single detail of what he's thinking. And it could be this, it could be that. Here's my little algorithm that I'm going through to figure out this problem and all that. I don't need to know all of that. I just basically need to know roughly what the problem was, roughly what he's doing to fix it, and that I know that if we do x y and z it's going to get done. So I'll tell you my little story. Uh, I once coached someone who wanted to lose weight, wanted to lose body fat. Uh, We agreed on a 12-week minimum to do the coaching online Uh, I think he wanted to lose uh, four kilos, if I remember right, maybe five kilos. It was something like that. And over the course of this time, I think I put him on some initial macros and an initial diet setup. And he went pretty well on that. I think we maybe made one tweak early on, maybe two weeks in something like that. And then he just continued to steadily lose for the rest of our 12 weeks ended up pretty much nailing his target exactly. I actually think he lost half a kilo more than what we aimed for. And at the end of that time, he complained. (laughs) He said, I don't think you did anything during that time. You know, every week I'd come to you and do my check-in and you'd basically have a look at everything and go, okay, no changes, let's keep going. And he got pretty annoyed that he was paying all this money and I didn't make changes often enough. And in my mind, if I would be making changes every week, it would be a really good indication that I had no freaking idea what I was doing, right? For me, a good coaching outcome is when we get into a position where we're making steady progress with absolute minimal intervention. Now, I totally understand where he's coming from. You pay a lot of money. You kind of want to see your coach doing something. You want to see what you're paying for you want to understand the decision making process and maybe i didn't communicate that to him well enough so that was definitely a lesson learned but at the end of the day you know what a lot of people think good online coaching is or good coaching in general is a lot of cues a lot of like details a lot of small tweaks a lot of micromanagement messaging you every day all of these little things maybe some magic stuff with your meal timing all that sort of stuff you know these little tips and industry secrets secrets, and that kind of thing. And fundamentally, really good coaching is getting you moving in the direction that you need to go with absolutely minimal effort, really. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't times where you work hard or where you get a lot of detail or anything like that, absolutely not. We're not trying to be as hands-off as possible necessarily, but what we are trying to do is to get a result for you without having to move move the earth, you know, move heaven and earth to get you there. So that's kind of the idea. Um, So now, you know, as I said, I think the best coaches are calculated, I think they consider all of the details, they take it all into account, but then they help their clients progress with minimal obvious intervention, even though there might be a lot going on behind the surface, or under the surface. So, That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that gave you a little bit of insight into how my thinking has changed. And I hope you consider changing your mind on some stuff too. If you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. I'm happy to do a lot more of them because I think it's quite fun and quite insightful. If you did enjoy it, then let me know. You can email me luke at luketug.com. You can also share this. And if you do, please feel free to tag me so that I can say thank you. Uh, Other than that, have a good one. Catch you next time.